Hey guys, welcome to a Light in the Darkness podcast. I'm Carly Robison. I'm a wife, a mother, and a person who's been suffering with severe health challenges for over 10 years. Through that time, I've had successes and failures while trying to maintain a positive attitude. Now I want to share what I've learned with you, hoping to make your hard times a little easier. This podcast is to help those of us facing times of darkness and trial find ways to let the light in. Hello, thank you for joining us on the Light in the Darkness podcast. This episode is always going to hold a special place in my heart. This Friday is September 11th, a day we'll all remember where we were and what we were doing, a time where we all pause and remember those whose lives were lost and those who are still struggling because of the choices that others made that day. Today, I want to introduce you to my friend, Brandy Paterakis, who unfortunately will forever be connected to 9-11. Thanks so much for being here today, Brandy. Hi, Carly. Thanks for inviting me. So first, I'm going to tell them a little bit about you, if that's okay. Yes. So Brandy Paterakis graduated from the University of Utah with her master's degree in social work. She started her career at Turnabout Stillwater Academy, where she found a love for working with troubled teens. She then transitioned to LDS Family Services and then South Point Counseling, where she currently works as a clinical therapist. Brandy brings excitement and passion to her life as she spreads her knowledge of mental health, depression, anxiety, as well as grief and loss to her counseling sessions, company meetings, firesides, and large group gatherings. Brandy has a true love for life, and it's apparent in her larger-than-life positive attitude and her <laughs> ability to make her home an energetic environment. This is all true. <laughs> Brandy <laughs> enjoys spending time with her husband of 22 years and her four dramatic teenage daughters. They mm -hmm. all enjoy being fun and crazy while always looking for projects and activities to do together as a family. Outside of work, Brandy enjoys speaking to large groups, theater, singing, decorating, reading, Halloween, experiencing strange foods, and exploring the world. So thanks again for being here today, Brandy. You are welcome. Thanks for inviting me. You know, <laughs> hearing that, I've heard that a couple times, and I always have to giggle after the whole, she brings excitement and passion. You know <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's true. Those who know so you, so funny. Brandy and I have known each other. We were just talking about it since fourth grade. That's a long time. <laughs> a long time. <laughs> because we are old. So <laughs> I always thought of Carly as the hoppy talk queen. Like she was oh. so good at that. And I love that about you. How funny. That's hilarious. Cause I don't even, I don't even remember hopscotch. I have a horrible memory. So I love it that <laughs> friends can remember things about me for me. Perfect. Mm -hmm. You are welcome. <laughs> so first of all, let's just talk a little bit about your life growing up. So Obviously, we grew up together. Where'd you grow up? How many siblings you had? That kind of stuff. Okay, so I am the oldest of four children. I was um, a child of Robin and Wendy Pilcher, who currently, well, um, my mom still lives in the same house that I grew up in as a baby. Um, so 
her parents are Marilyn and Elwood Davis, and my dad's parents are Peggy and um, Paul Pilcher, which is kind of interesting because we've been here for so long. There's a lot of people that know those people, you know, in our community. So that's where I grew up. I grew up in a really fun, energetic home. Um, my dad was not a home a lot because um, he was a paramedic fireman, and so he was gone a lot of the time but my mom made up with it with excitement and passion and fun there's that word again notice that and <laughs> this exciting you know lifestyle we always did things as a family um the time that was spent together was quality time and yeah. you know that's kind of how i wanted to raise my children is you know quality time is more important than you know the amount of time that we have together for sure. I love that. Thank mm -hmm. you. So now tell us about kind of how'd your, you and your husband meet and how did your family, your current family begin? So, um, this is the story that's hilarious. This is going to give you a really good piece of understanding about my husband. So my husband's name is Heath Paterakis. I met him for those of you that are as old as I am, um, and know a little bit about Salt Lake City. There was this dance club called the Bay and it was country night and I met him on country night. Um, in fact, he was dressed in overalls. He had, um, really like, um, he looked like he had dreadlocks on like he had dreadlocks in his hair and a huge, like one of those huge hats that you wear on a farm. And my husband is 6'3 and about 320 pounds. So he's a big dude. He's not like, he's like a football player, you know, just big and solid. And can I say yummy? Like he was just really, <laughs> you know what I mean? But there was that question like, what? He's dressed in overalls. He has this huge hat on and he comes over to me and he asked me to dance. And this is the bratty teenager I am. I'm like, ew, no. And oh. I, <laughs> and his friends came over and they're like, but he's never danced with a girl before. Like he's only danced with his mom. And like, we brought him here. We promised him that he could dance with someone and you are that person. And I'm like, oh crap. And so my heart swelled and I'm like, maybe if he like shaved his head or something. And of course, by then I knew he was wearing a wig. That's why I kind of said it. And yeah. he was funny and he went out in the hall and took off his hat, his big sombrero thing and his hair. And he came back in and his head was completely shaved. And I'm like, whoa, okay. We have a really good personality. So this is how I met my husband. We danced, things went really well. And I'm like, he can keep up with me because he is just as crazy as I am. So that's kind of how things started. Um, about two and a half years later, we had children, moved into a nice home, got married. Um, actually, we married first, got kids, what, you know, the fun stuff. And then, I, so I, I have now, I have four teenage daughters. Um, they all have boy names. I have Logan, who she's currently in Ohio serving a mission. So she's 19. And then I have Charlie, who's 17, super fun and spunky. She's always keeping me on my toes. And then, of course, Georgie and Frankie, who are the babies of the family, but still in middle school. So they're kind of in that bratty stage. You know what I mean? Yeah. But of course, I love trouble teens. So I love my girls. But that is my, yeah. I, that is my current exciting life right now. <laughs> 
Oh, thanks so much for sharing that. So um, like I said in the introduction, I wanted to have you on today because of your connection to September 11th. And um, that connection is kind of through your dad. So let's talk about your dad a little bit. Um, why don't you tell me about him? Let's do it. Um, my dad he is the second oldest of about six, seven children. And he is like full of life. Well, there's never a place that we went um, as kids. Like we'd go to Disneyland and he would know two to three people. Like you go anywhere with my father and he knows everyone and is never shy to talk to anyone at all. Um, he decided at a young age, out of high school, that he wanted to you know, work in a line of service of some sort. And in the process of like figuring out what he wanted to do, firemen and paramedic came to mind. So my, that's when he met my mom. He was working as a fireman paramedic and he came home to her one day and he had like his eyebrows were completely gone and all of this hair on his arms were completely gone and his hair was like singed. And she's like, what in the world happened? And he's like, um, so I kind of got blown out of a building today. <laughs> and so my, oh my, mom, <laughs> my mom knew from that point on that there was always going to be a little bit of fear associated with his job and his occupation. And sure. while she wasn't really truly happy of being married to a fireman, paramedic, she knew the, the brotherhood that he had there and the experiences that he had of saving people, um, and promoting his life in a life of service was really important to him. So we grew up from a very young age, understanding very clearly that my father might not come home sometimes. Oh. You know, we knew that, you know, um, being in the religion that we, that I, my family is in, which is the LDS or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, mm -hmm. religion is that, you know, someday there might be a traumatic event that happens. There might be a huge earthquake. I mean, we've, we've talked about that from living in Utah. We live on that fault line and it's like, there could yeah. be an earthquake. And so from there, <laughs> we're always like, if that happens, my dad may not get to come with us if we have to leave the valley or if we have to go somewhere, we'll be leaving my dad behind. And so, and that's if, you know, there's always that possibility of him when people run out of a building, my dad is the one that's running into the building. And so yeah. knowing that firsthand, we always kind of accepted the fact that my dad might not be around forever for us. And so that's kind of the start of the whole exciting movement of where he started, where he came from, and how like, you know, my story now is one of awareness and hope for him as like, you know, from the beginning of time, his equipment was never good enough. Their equipment was never good enough. Yeah. You know, there's always complications that come up no matter, you know, where you live. You know, if you're, if you're running into a building that's burning, there's toxins that are being released. There's chemicals. And these men didn't, we didn't have the education or the know-how to promote or to build equipment good enough to save these men's lives. And so yeah. there's constantly men that are getting sick. Um, cancer is becoming very apparent right now in the, you know, in the service industry of firemen. And so becoming aware of that kind of started the movement at 9-11. And so um, I'm going to kind of jump into that just a little bit. Like 
So my dad started out at Salt Lake County Fire. Um, he moved to Unified Fire Authority. He served as the captain and deputy fire marshal. And then he was invited to take part in an emergency response team, which is called the Utah Task Force One. And the Utah Task Force One is ultimately what took him to serve in 2005 in August. He went to Hurricane Katrina. It was the category five hurricane. Um, it had 1800 wow. deaths. It also did a damage of $125 billion, like big, wow. big time. Um, he came home. He was home for like maybe a week <laughs> or two weeks. Oh, wow. And then he was deployed again to, um, you know, in September, same year, 2005, to Hurricane Rita. And at Hurricane Rita, it wasn't as big as Katrina. It was a category three. It had, only had 120 deaths and about $18.5 billion in damage. But he was there as rescue efforts. Um, they were put on boats to go in and out, um, mainly at Hurricane Katrina, to go and knock on doors, go through homes, um, put X's on doors if they found that nobody was there so that nobody else would double check the home. But they're basically looking for people trapped or surviving or hurt that they could rescue and pull out of there. With Hurricane Rita, um, he kind of did the same thing, but it was more on ground. The water had kind of pulled away once he got there. And the mold that was starting to creep up into these homes was was tremendous. Like, it, like you can't even imagine the destruction that this did. And so think about these men with not really good um, like uniforms and respirators and things to protect them going into these homes full of mold, mold like thousands of homes, yeah. you know? And so that's kind of where this kind of all started is this, you know, rescue effort of helping. Um, soon later, 2011, of course we all know the tragic event of 9-11 happened where um, the Twin Towers fell. Yeah. Um, I think we all remember where we were at on that day. I remember sure. where I was at. Um, I worked at Ultradent as a, like a dental, I don't even know what it's called. Somebody that takes phone calls for dentists. Like that's what I did, right? <laughs> I had a baby, Logan was born 2001. And um, they sent us all home that day. And I remember going home and I just thought of it as like a normal day. Like, okay, let's go home, you know, like, yay, this is great, but so tragic. And like, oh my gosh, like this is happening to people in the world and the devastation and the scared, like we were all so fearful of like, what's going to come from this. Right. And so I remember going home and I actually didn't go home. I went to my mom's house to pick up Logan because she was watching her. And my mom was like, in tears. And I was just like, okay, like, mom, talk to me, like, tell me what's going on. And she's like, I think your dad's going to be sent out. And I'm like, sent out where? <laughs> and she's like, to New York. And I'm like, oh, whoa, hold on. Okay. Like this just became really real. This is going to now affect my family. Like, Okay, and they brought in all the wives. They did a huge training for the wives of how to support these men, why they're gone, how to support themselves, why these men are gone. Um, my dad left a week later. He went up to the Hill Air Force Base. Um, they could not get a flight into New York because of flights were like on the no, and there was tons yeah. of, and they were taking a big military like plane in 
from Utah with all of their gear and supplies and everything. And so they had to wait four days. So by the time he landed in New York, it was like a week and a half after the fact. But the moment that he stepped on ground zero, I remember um, him sharing his story of this, of it being like so bad. Like we saw it on TV, but he said that there was weeping and welling, like coming out from everywhere. Like people were crying, like not just kind of tears crying, but like welling crying. And he was like, oh my gosh, that gives a whole nother definition to the weeping and welling of like the utter devastation. And he said that that impacted him like more than just seeing the rubble was hearing yeah. those people and the sounds and the terror and people running, trying to find their loved ones. And don't forget, this is like an, a week and a half later. And yeah. he was put on the rubble and what they were told with all the debris is that this is not a rescue mission. Um, this is a, you know, a mission of, of recovering, um, like body parts is what it is. There's a nicer word and I'm like wrote it down, but I'd have to look at it and I can't see yeah. it. But like, you know, he was, it was a rescue mission of recovering remains. There we go. I found it. There you go. Um, so in this recovery effort that he was there, there was right before they arrived at ground zero, there was a troop that came in and it was another rescue troop. I don't know what state it was from. Um, I don't know how many men there were, but he told me this story. So this is from, you know, and my mom kind of reminded me a little bit about this story, but um, they had found a pathway in like a week later and they were so excited. Like we found this pathway in and we think it goes down to the underground garage underneath the twin towers. And so they got their gear all on and they got everything going and they got down in there because they thought, well, if there's trucks down there that have food in it or water, people could still be alive. Yeah. And so they sent a bunch of men down under in this tunnel area and down in there, they were down there for four days. They didn't come out. We had no idea where they went, what happened to them. We can't find them. Um, we're sending people down there they're not finding them but the utah task force one was the ones that actually found them and recovered these men that went on this rescue mission and brought them out and um, what ended up happening is they were down there for four days no they had very little food and water um and they were stuck because and i'm not exactly sure on the story but something with um their lights going out they had no lights and no radio down there so they couldn't find they were in complete black Okay. They had 200 yards away or not even 200 yards. It was like just barely like a couple stalls away in this parking garage was a huge truck full of water and food. They never even found it in the four days they were down there. So that goes to kind of show you. So once they pulled them out, they're like, there's not, we're not going to be able to find there. Nobody can see anything down here. Um, um, so that was kind of a cool thing that happened. But I, I remember another story my dad said is that like, once he got down there, he started coughing. He could smell through his respirator mask. Like they were all geared up and everything. One of the things that they told him was make sure you watch where you step because where you step is, um, can be very still flaming hot. In other words, it would melt the, the rubber on the bottom of your boots. Wow. So they said, watch where you're, where you step. Um, and then they, you know, they gathered the remains and they were there. Um, my dad, of course, could smell everything. 
the, like we kind of talked about before, the respirator and the things that he had uh, to help keep him safe was not safe enough. And my dad started coughing. In fact, um, pretty much everyone there started coughing. (laughs) And he's like, okay, here we go. Like, I know that my equipment's not good enough, but I'm here, like, this is my job. Like, I need to, like, do my job and to serve this country and to serve these people that are here in this devastation. And so um, while he was there, amazing things and most beautiful things happen though. Um, Restaurants stayed open and fed my father and his unit um, for free. And they didn't have the money to do that, but they did and they found it and community came together to feed them. Um, In fact, and we'll probably get to this in a little bit, but like one of the awesome parts of uh, losing a father to the line of service is like he, we got invited to go back to New York and put his name on a wall. And while there, they, the fire department from New York took us around the city and actually uh, fed us lunch at one of these places where my dad was fed free and the man was still there. And I was like, you fed my father at 9-11. He's like, I love your father. I'm like, you don't know my father, but thank you for loving my father. But it was like, and I have pictures of him, you know, which I'm going to send you the pictures of so you can have all those, but like pictures of him sitting out front eating food and talking and laughing. And that's the part that's great about being a serviceman is, you know, part of of coping through tragic things. Cause my dad saw a lot of tragedy, like a yeah. lot of tragic things, a lot of high emotions and part of his coping was laughter. So him and his group of men, and that's why they're so tightly bound together in the fire department is because they learned how to laugh and him laughing together. And I think sometimes people felt like that was very disrespectful. You know, someone just yeah. died and we're laughing. But it wasn't a laughter at those people. It's a laughter of hope and a laughter of, you know, excitement for the future and a way to cope with some of the things that were, they were struggling with. And so yeah. I love seeing him laugh, you know, it, yeah, it, it was that. totally awesome. Um, so when he came home on the airplane home, um, I can't remember how long he was there, but it was like three weeks, I think. Oh, and wow. okay. we ca- he came home and all the way home, they all coughed, like coughing, 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 coughing on this plane home. And of course, they're in a military plane. I wish I knew the military planes. I don't. But some awesome plane coming home. <laughs> and when he got home, my mom always said, like, he coughed up a lung. Like, my dad coughed like he was coughing up a lung for seven months. And he never stopped coughing. There was about a period of once or twice a year where he would cough up a lung again um, after that point. But seven months, it was continual. We went to doctors. They couldn't find out what was wrong with him. They didn't know. Um, It was just so bad. And they didn't really talk about it. Like, it wasn't talked about or like, you know how men are. They're just kind of like, yeah, Yeah. cough, like no big deal, like whatever. (laughs) And so he was kind of in the same realm, like, they just didn't have that conversation. And so, yeah, honestly, I've never even, I've never even thought about this aspect of 
um, firefighters' lives, like thinking about that and thinking about all of the, the different things that um, they're obviously breathing in. I think about when I wear my, my mask. So I wear an N95 mask, which is different than the kinds of masks everybody's wearing right now. And um, it's you know, it's supposed to filter out almost everything. Mm -hmm. And there are times that I can smell things. There are times that obviously I still have reactions through my mask. Um, and that's just not something that I've ever even thought about this added, you know, I, you think about the firefighters and how brave they are to, like you said, run into the danger, um, just to help us. That's that, that's why they're doing it is just to help us. Um, but I've never thought about the fact that it's not just the fire. That's the danger. It's so many other things. Mm -hmm. So, um, he got home, he coughed for a long time and then they really never felt or figured out what was going on. He never really mm -hmm. had a diagnosis. So kind of tell mm -hmm. me, you know, how, how things went from that point on. So it was really kind of amazing. And this is the part of like these miracles that start taking place that our family starts recognizing. And a part of our faith really believes in watching for those miracles. And so we did. Um, and of course we didn't see him at the time. We now, we see him later. Right. Of course. Yeah. But but one of the miracles that happened is a phone call came in from to my dad and it said, Hey, you went to ground zero, right? And my dad's like, yeah, I went to ground zero. And this was probably about, I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe. And, um, they said, Hey, there's this thing that this man is putting together that they're advocating. They're finding that all these men that went to ground zero in the rescue efforts are getting sick. And so he is advocating, his name's John Phil. Um, he is fantastic. I've met him. Love that man. You want to talk about spirit and passion and life? He <laughs> has it. But anyway, so he's putting together this foundation for all of those servicemen that went over to Ground Zero. And part of this service or part of this um, advocate is to get insurance in case you get sick. And so my dad's like, well, okay, what can I hurt? Like, I'm going to include myself on this bill or whatever it is. So he signs up for it and um, didn't think anything of it. And a couple years later, he started getting really bad stomach aches. And um, him and my mom were serving a mission for the LDS church at the time. And they, my dad had stomach aches like this when he was in his mission, he went to Alaska um, on his church mission. And so he had the same kind of stomach issue and they, they caused it. They kind of claimed that it was stress on his mission. So we thought, geez, I'm serving another mission and now I'm stressed again. <laughs> like great. But it got so bad that it got to the point where he started losing a lot of weight. And so we kind of got some, we got concerned and this was about 2015 um, about January, February, he decided, okay, I'm going to go in and get this looked at. So he went in and got it looked at and they're like, it's not good. Like there's something wrong here. We don't know what it is, but it's not good. So then she's, my mom's telling our family this, right? And this is, this is part of the process of this ground day effect that of like extreme emotions that kind of started taking place. Yeah. And the ground effect was like, oh crap. Like there's something wrong with my dad, 
but we don't know anything, right? So our minds are going to the worst possible scenario. They're also going to hope. Like all of these things are kind of this mixture of emotions and we're like, oh my gosh. And then you kind of start coming back down to reality. You start feeling a little bit better and then the test results come back, right? And then the test results come back of he has cancer. We just don't know where. And so then our emotions were like all run up again and we're like, he's going to die and no, he's not going to die. Like, let's not go there. And so then we kind of bring ourselves down again and we're comforting each other in our family. My family is very close. Like I have a younger brother and two younger sisters and we are all very close in age. My mom whipped us out super fast. And so all of our kids are the same age. Um, we're super, super close family. Like you think of the closest family that you know, and we are that family, like probably even more so. So I'm very close to my brother and my sisters. And so we came together and we're like, oh my gosh, like here we are again. So our, our, we kind of come back to normal, like whatever happens, we're just going to face it. You know, whatever it is, we're going to lean on God. Like we're going to find our faith. We're going to find our hope and we're going to recognize our purpose in this. And we're going to get through this. And of course, all of us inside are like, no, we're not. <laughs> no, yeah. we're not going to get through this, you know? Um, so anyway, we find out, right? And then all of a sudden, bring ourselves back down, pancreatic cancer. Ta-da! If you want to talk about one cancer that's like the worst cancer to ever get, it's pancreatic cancer. In fact, pancreatic cancer has a 9% survival rate. 9%. I didn't say 90. I said 9 so when we heard this, of course, we're researching on the computers, you know what I mean? Like trying to figure out what it is. And, oh, I was just like, this is not good. My dad is going to die. And this is, you know, the extreme emotions of trying to figure out like anger. Like, of course, I'm a therapist, right? So I know all the signs of grief and loss you know, which are like the denial, the anger, you know, and then you kind of go into this stage of bargaining, you know, like with God or whatever, like, please save him. I will do whatever you want, like whatever it is. And then you have like this depression and then the acceptance part, which is like that nice kind of final part to it. And of course we can stay at any of these stages for as long as we need to. We all grieve differently. So I'm sitting here going, okay, here we are. Like I'm definitely like I skipped denial and I went straight to anger. Like I am mad. I am mad at God. Like what the crap is happening right now? Like I am, I'm not just mad at God, but I am mad at like, I am mad at America. Like I am mad at those men that came and bombed, you know, or flew their planes into those twin towers. And now I don't get to be with my father. I'm mad at the fire department. Dang it all. Like why couldn't we all be smart enough to make good enough masks and to like come up with equipment that's good enough, you know, and I'm frustrated with anybody that I could point a finger to that could hold some sort of responsibility. Like my dad, why did you go into that profession? Like my mom, why did you let him? You know, what I mean? like all of these complete emotions that are just taking over and consuming me with anger. And then I started the process of like the denial, right? Which is like, this isn't happening. No, I don't believe it. Like, I'm, it's not real. It's not real. And everyone's like, it is real. Okay. Yeah, maybe it is real. And I knew it was real, but I didn't know it was real. You know what I mean? And I kept on feeling like I was in a dream. Yeah. Like I'm in this dream. I'm going to wake up. And I didn't wake up. And then um, a guy, we decided as a family that, you know what? Part of our religion believes that there's hope. 
you know, and in this process, I kind of forgive God, like not that he's needs to be forgiven, but in my mind, I felt like I needed to. And like, I went on this journey of like kind of healing a little bit, like putting myself in a good place. I love it where my mom said that there was a point in her life where she had to make the decision to choose bitterness or to choose positivity and forgiveness for all things. And she knew that if she chose bitterness, it would bring down all of us, our whole family. And so she chose positivity. And I was just like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like that was the turning moment for me where I'm like, that's, that's exactly what I need to do too for me and my kids and my family, right? So we know my dad has pancreatic cancer. Um, we also know that we live in a church where we can believe in certain faiths and have the ability to make a difference um, by asking. And we do that through fasting. So we congregated all of our friends and family together. And of course, this is before COVID when we could actually do that, right? <laughs> but we congregated all of our family together and we came up with this plan. Like, let's ask God because, you know, and there was that scripture, like if you ask in faith, you know, and so we're like, okay, let's ask in faith because he might grant that to us. And so we begged God for a miracle. It's happened before. There's 9% out there, Carly, right? That yeah. can get us to like. <laughs> he could be a 9%. Yeah, 9% chance. Like, why couldn't my dad be that 9% chance? Like, this will be a big miracle and we'll spread it all over the world. Like, God saved our dad, right? We didn't receive our big miracle, Carly. We didn't. And we were devastated. We were devastated. But we made a choice to choose. So we chose to have faith and we chose to like watch for the other miracles that kind of come in. And I'm going to tell you what, our family may have not received that large, big miracle that we all wanted so desperate, but the miracles that came to our family was thousands. I'm not talking hundreds, but thousands. And these miracles were so awesome that they surpassed all the big miracle that we really, really desperately wanted. And that was like really, really cool to watch for and to see and to be able to be in a grieving position where we could watch them and see them, you know, after coming down and having that acceptance of like recognizing what part we play in this life, recognizing what part my dad plays in this life, and recognizing how like to get through this together and how we needed to be connected with other people. And it was really cool. Like some of those, those miracles were in the form of family and friends that would come and support us and love us. Um, there was some awesome, awesome, um, awesome miracles that happened very spiritually. that are too sacred to talk about. Um, there were some that were so incredible that it knocked our socks off, like the ability to, you know, be able to go across the country and celebrate, you know, or to mourn my dad. We, we kind of go with the celebration of life type of theme mm -hmm. in our family, but like really go over and put his name on walls and, you know, celebrate the fact that he was a true hero in our lives and in the lives of America. Like, mm -hmm which was really, really cool. So some of those things ended up being really cool. I'll tell you a couple of them. 
one of them is um, the year after my dad died, about 2017. He, we were invited as a family to go back to Colorado Springs, which is, um, they have a fireman's memorial there. And it's for any um, fallen firefighter gets their name up on this wall. So anybody in the country that has a fallen firefighter, and I think even Canada might be invited into this, gets to put their name on this wall. And it's awesome. I'll send you some pictures of that so you can have them for your YouTube. But it was amazing. Um, our family came together and people noticed, like that was the crazy thing. They noticed, like people were crying and so sad. And our family was like, you know, we weren't being disrespectful, but we were like happy and like hugging each other and laughing. And, you know, other families, you could see them looking at us, like, how do they have that? You know, and of course we were all in red because my family's super dramatic that way. You know, <laughs> you got to show up in style and be all in red. And they rung the last bell and it was all televised on TV, which was really cool. And, but you could tell there was a definite difference in the way that my family mourned and, you know, had that hope versus, versus other people's families, you know? Yeah. which was really cool. Um, after Colorado, we were sent down to uh, New York, which was really cool. Um, yeah. We got to be a part of the Long Island 9-11 Responders Memorial Park. And that's where we got to meet John Phil, who put together this amazing foundation. It's called the John Phil Good Foundation. I think it might, anyway, it's awesome. And he advocates for those um, that were in 9-11 and the search and rescue efforts to receive yeah. um, compensation and, and health, you know, benefits in order to get through the loss of, you know, losing a loved one. And so yeah. um, he's amazing. And if you can watch anything for his, in fact, if you go to New York and go to the Ground Zero site down in the basement, they have this beautiful tower and they have this jacket and he has like a lot of really cool things in there that talk about this feel good foundation and how to make awareness of the things that these men sacrificed and are still continuing to sacrifice. In fact, um, my, my dad was the first one in Utah to die from the effects of nine 11, as far as being a firefighter and from the Utah task force one this week, we had a second one happen. Um, his name was Chris cage. He was the second in Utah. I haven't reached out to the family, but I need to do that. Um, I'm giving them a little bit of time to like, mm -hmm. you know, get through that morning process a little bit before I share my experiences and my, you know, the different offers and things that you can do as part of having mm -hmm. a fallen firefighter. So now we have two in Utah, but this does not account for all of the movie stars that came over to say thank you to the 9-11 responders there's been many of them that have gotten sick from just going over there. Um, wow. Some even passed away. We have, you know, the firemen are not the only people. We have all the people that are even over there that live there that are coming down yeah. with cancers and different health concerns. Um, one of our family's good friends named Danielle, she was a fireman that went over there and she slipped and tripped and fell and got some soot in her mouth, came down with double pneumonia, um, had to go home, went home, um, found out she was pregnant. And then there was all these complications that came from that as well, from having a baby mm -hmm. with complications. So like 
this is not the only story. There are hundreds and thousands of stories of people falling all across America. This thing happened in 2011, um, but we are still seeing the, or 2001, but we're still seeing the effects today. And that is so hard because what a tragedy. It wasn't just the two towers that fell that day. It's yeah. thousands of people that are continuing to still fall. And that's the awareness part, right? That's my story of awareness is understanding that, you know, because of one choice, thousands are, you know, hurt because of it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your dad, all about your dad and, and his beautiful story. I think that, like I said, it's just such a, an amazing opportunity for all of us as the whole world kind of pauses and, and tries to remember um, the people who were lost on 9-11. I think it's so important to now think about, do you know what? We're still losing people because of 9-11. Their families still need support. And like you said, you know, finding safer and better ways for these first responders that need to go into these dangerous situations. Um, I think that so much good can come from, from your dad's sacrifice. And I'm so grateful for, for him and for your family and all that they've been through. Um, as you mentioned, you are a clinical licensed um, therapist. Mm -hmm. And so I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about maybe specific strategies that you've kind of used in order to deal with the passing of your dad. Um, like you said, the anger, all of these different emo emotions. How can you um, and your family really um, choose to stay in that more positive mindset instead of turning to that bitterness. Do you have a few strategies to share with us? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's interesting because I do work and I'm currently working with right now, um, people that are dealing with the loss of a loved one. Um, and it's, it's nice to know that I I've been through it so I can empathize at a deeper level you know, than other maybe therapists that haven't been through that. And so recognizing that, you know, I don't, you know, we have to find something. It's not necessarily, you know, the grief and the loss, it's going to be there. The grief and the loss isn't, it's going to diminish a little bit over time and it becomes a little bit better as we categorize it and make it feel better. But it's not necessarily about the grief and the loss. It's about how we react to the grief and the loss, you know? And so, um, and that's that first point of when my mom made that choice of like, you know, I'm choosing happiness, you know, and how do I do that? And that, that came in the form of connection with our family. It came in the form of us finding a purpose for why my dad's life was complete where it was. So we could end it there with pure satisfaction. Um, it was a lot of like our faith that kind of you know, goes into that. And I do work with that with other clinicians or other clients. It's like, where, where does your faith stand? And how do you overcome that? You know, what is it that, that your faith tells you, you know, life after death, you know, and, and holding on to that and believing that, right? And for us, that was a huge part of it is like the atonement and the sacrifice of God, of our Savior and recognizing that we all have a purpose down here on this earth. And that was kind of what kind of got us through. Um, the stories not letting my fat, my father's story die. So being on your podcast today, like that's another way of like, you know, 
feeling his love and being there with him and sharing his story and being able to tell others, you know, and, and with him too, like in the moment when we were going down and it was getting dark and ugly because it does, right? That's part of that groundhog effect that I was telling you about of emotions where things just got terrible a lot of the time. Um, but feeling those emotions, I was like, whoa, like listening to my dad's stories, him telling my mom in a sweet little embrace, because my dad was in and out a lot of the time because of the medications to his um, pancreatic cancer is really, really painful. And so he had to be on some medications to help with that pain. It, but the medications also caused him to not be able to be present and we couldn't talk with him. And in that moment, him drawing, when he would wake up um, before the pain set in of having that simple moment where he would put his hands on my head and give me a father's blessing, or he would like draw my mom in and kiss her on the lips and tell her, you know, I'll look after all the kids up there. You've got them all down here. You know, like I'll do my part. You do your part. Like those are the sweet things that kind of hold us through and be like, you know what? He had a really great life. Like he did. And yeah, he could have had a longer one. And unfortunately he didn't get that, but that wasn't in his plans. That's not in the makeup of, of our belief system, you know? And so we had to just have that faith. We laughed as a family like laughed our guts off. Um, we have a pool in our backyard and we opened our pool in March and we're like, heat that baby up. Like the kids were all swimming, you know, as my dad is dying next door, cause I live next to my mom in, in the home. And, you know, we laughed, we had a good time. We went in and sat around my dad's bed when he was dying and we giggled and we laughed up until the moment that he died. When we looked over and we're like, I think my, our dad is gone. Like, and that, you know, that reverence that kind of comes over you at that moment of time, but feeling like grateful for the ability to laugh, you know, to get through things. That's something that he passed to you guys. That's <laughs> what you talked about that, you know, mm -hmm. that was one of his ways of, of coping with the hard things. And so what an amazing thing that you guys can continue that legacy for him. Beautiful. It was so beautiful. We also were very present in watching for the miracles because that kind of made it better. You know, since we didn't get that one big miracle, but watching for all those little, those little small ones, you know, and just the story of healing, like is finding others around us. Like in therapy, we always talk about like this, the, the challenge of therapy is first recognizing that there's a problem, right? Second is what are you willing to sacrifice to do about it? Third is making goals to do something about it. Fourth is doing something about it. And then the fifth is the gold, right? And that comes when you learn all these lessons and you've challenged yourself, you've gone through molding that, that rock into a diamond, right? You get at the end and you learn all these things from it and you share them with other people that are going through the same thing. That's the component that we're, that we're constantly working towards and trying to become, and our family has. Like we have, reached out to so many people that have been struggling and finding and helping give them hope that it's okay. Watch for those miracles. Don't be so drowned in the sorrow in us, the sorrow that we can't find and see the good that comes from this as well. And when we can see the good, that's when we truly start healing. It's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. You're so if somebody was inspired by your story, maybe they even just want to reach out to you or your mom and your family and, and thank them for your dad's service and for the sacrifice that your family 
gave um, for our country and for our freedom. Or maybe they even want to get to know you and come to see you in your therapy office. Um, what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Well, I did include where I work in my bio, right? Yes. But ultimately, <laughs> which is South Point Counseling Services here in South Jordan, Utah, um, you know, counselors are pretty much on lockdown. You can't get through the front office to get to see or talk to a therapist <laughs> unless you have an actual appointment. But, yes. you know, I think the best way to get a hold of me is probably through like Facebook because it has my okay. name on there, which is Brandy Pilcher Paterakis. And from there, you know, if they did want to come and see me as a therapist, um, that would be where I would probably place my job and occupation that I'm working at. But okay. um, we also have a family blog. We haven't updated it for a while, so we get on that. But it's <laughs> called Heroes Last Call. And so that's something where we just honor our father's life. You can find pictures and hear our story there. Um, and, and so that's kind of how our legacy kind of moves on through our father as well. That's beautiful. I'll definitely link um, your social media accounts as well as that blog. I'd love to um, read that too. So I'll link those in the show notes. So thank you so much for being here. It was so fun to be able to get to talk to you and to kind of reminisce and talk about your dad. So thank you so much for sharing. No, thank you. And yeah. And so thank you all for listening today. And if you guys are liking what you hear on this podcast, or if you were touched by Brandy's story, um, share it, share it on your Facebook page, send it in a text to somebody that you think might need to hear the things that she shared today, or that maybe can be inspired by her story. Um, I just think that that's how we can honor those who have served, just like you said, um, by sharing their stories and having them live on through them. So um, thank you so much for being here and listening to our A Light in the Darkness podcast. And I hope you guys have a wonderful week and that you're able to see the light in your own personal darkness. And we'll see you here again next Wednesday. Bye. I want to give a special thanks to my son Carter for recording and writing our intro and outro music for this podcast. If you want to hear more of his music, you can find him on Instagram at CarterGuitar456. 